Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dare to Dream podcast. My name is Gregory Russell Benedict, and this is episode number 75. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Deborah Mares, who is an attorney, a nonprofit founder, an author, and a teacher. Deborah has written three books The Mamacita Murders, The Suburban Seduction, I think I'm saying that right, which are both fiction thrillers. And she's also written a children's book titled It's This Monkey's Business. The nonprofit that Deborah founded is called Woman Wonder Writers, and their flagship program is called The Right of Your Life. This program brings trauma trained instructors to classrooms and other institutions to educate and mentor those affected by trauma, crime, and other hardships through the arts. This was truly an amazing conversation with Deborah. She is such an inspiring, incredible, strong woman, and I know you guys are going to love this episode. We covered a wide variety of topics from her nonprofit experience to her professional career as an attorney to silent meditation retreats and much, much more. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Deborah Mares. What do you tell people when they meet you for the first time and they ask you, who are you? Jeez, <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know. I, it usually goes back to work, you know, because just to give people some context of you're a lawyer, I think we all need to put people in a box, you know. I do infuse when I'm feeling courageous to say like author because that's sort of like a, what is that called? Um you know, when you get, uh, what's that fear? Imposter syndrome. Mm. I still deal with that with uh, being an author. So the most confident thing is lawyer. Yeah. yeah. But you smiled the most when you said author. Uh, yeah, probably because it's creative and fun. Yeah. So maybe we start there. Can you tell me more about The Mamacita Murders? Yeah. So it's a legal thriller I wrote back in 2012, but it features it's basically a whodunit with a little bit of urban fantasy, if I had to describe it. Uh, it's a... Latina prosecutor, you know, the heroine is Gabby Reese, and she is basically trying to figure out who committed a crime, a sex crime against one of the girls that she mentors. Um, so it's kind of a whodunit. Was it the gang that did it to her? Was it a John? Was it her pimp? Was it someone else we're not thinking about? And so it takes you through a journey of discovering who committed that crime. And, but also it's the backstory of Gabby Reese and she grew up in an kind of like an alcoholic domestic violence home. So her mom is killed at the hands of her stepfather. So she's kind of through her work is working through that basically. So it's kind of about that's the backstory to it. Yeah. Gabby Reese is Laird Hamilton's wife, right? Oh, that's the name of the character. Oh, so this is completely made up. Totally fiction. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> No, she, Gabby Reese is uh, like the Latina heroine in the Mamacita Murders as the main character. And also, uh, yeah, she loves salsa dancing. She loves, she takes her airstream around with the other lead characters who are her friends. And they mentor girls in different trailer parks throughout a fictional city that are trying to escape from sex trafficking and gang violence. So it takes you through a lot of those types of issues. Yeah. And what inspired you to write this book? Several things. At the time, I was working in, closely working in the gang unit, so seeing a lot of crimes against women, sex trafficking crimes. There was a particular girl, she was a foster youth, that came to my attention when I was in the sexual assault and child abuse unit as a former prosecutor. And she was 16 years old and came across my desk as a domestic violence case. But what was different to me was the abuser was much older than her, first off, I think in his 30s. Uh, when she came to court, there was these weird, subtle signs that I couldn't really understand or put my finger on. She was um, being escorted by an older woman who was kind of just monitoring her throughout our interactions and would sit by her, would watch her. And that was very unusual to me. Um, she didn't really have a home. She kind of lived in a foster home, but had run away from it. So I'm thinking, where is this girl living right now? So long story short, 
uh, went to my boss and he suggested building a rapport with her. And that led me to kind of understand a dark world I wasn't familiar with through talking to her, her, her girlfriends. And she was kind of this girl that I was never able, able to rescue. You know, it really showed me the gaps in our social service systems and like law enforcement. And although we can all try to do our job, we're really up against this bigger sex trafficking, you know, beast that's out there. Uh, so to get those stories out of my head, writing, which I think can be very therapeutic, was able to do that. So the Mamacita Murders was born. It's not based on any, any particular case. It's not non-fictional. It's definitely a legal thriller in fiction and all made up. But there are sort of characters and people and stories and cases that inspired that. So that's basically where the inspiration came from. Mm. I love how you say that writing is therapeutic. For me, I write to keep myself sane. It's, yes. Sometimes you need to get those thoughts out of your head onto the paper so you can have new thoughts, but then also so you can kind of put that thought you wrote about on the table and sift through it and make sense of it. Exactly. Now, it's uh, one of my writing coaches had a phrase, uh, Gail Brandeis. She said, I met her at UCLA Extension Writing Course, and she became a supporter of a writing nonprofit. I found it also, and she would say, you know, especially poetry helps express the ineffable, where you get out on paper things that you can't even say in regular conversation or just long form writing or even journal writing. So it's been a big source of uh, outlet for myself as well as helping other kind of girls write too. Poetry expresses the ineffable. Wow. That's powerful. I just wrote a piece the other day about why I love writing poetry so much. And I think your single sentence there was better than my whole article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely has that. I mean, most cultural arts do that in different forms. It's just what modality you're going to select. Yeah. So I do want to ask about the nonprofit, but before we go there, I'm really curious as to what the mental chatter and the obstacles were before you wrote the book. Like when you decided, when you first had the inclination that I want to write a book, but you hadn't written a book before, what was that like? How did you overcome that obstacle? I think education's the key to overcoming a lot of those obstacles, including that imposter syndrome or how am I going to get there? And education has been key in my life. So it started with just going back to school for it. I thought about getting a master's of fine arts, but that just seemed like a lot, too much work. I already had a law degree. And so it was like, so I went to classes. I, at the time I was living in Los Angeles. So I went to Skirball that had something uh, taught by a woman, Martha, can't remember her last name, but she taught a course called Autobiography, Memoir, or Fiction. And I sat in a classroom for probably about 12 weeks with young Holocaust child survivors who were trying to tell their stories and had these blocks of uh, loss of memory, you know, because of their horrific stories. And so they were trying to put together all these details from their lives. And I began understanding how do you, t how do you tell a story, especially when you have to, when you have gaps in your in your brain about certain things that happen. Uh, so going out and interviewing other people. And then I began just loving the process of writing and tearing up those first drafts. And at the time I had a specific case in my mind that really impacted me. It was uh, two young girls had gotten killed in a drunk driving accident by their friend that was playing a game of chicken and driving through these narrow streets of Norco at the time and lost control of his car and two of the girls inside the cab passed away. And so I was kind of processing that case and actually putting it to paper and things just sounded like this rambling set. I don't know, just it was not it was it was it wasn't anything worth publishing. So gaining the experience from working with in other writing groups, I took that same teacher in Laguna Beach, did another writing course where I sat with other women and just shared our work. So got the bravery to write something down, bring it to class and just share it. And then that doved into going to UCLA Extension course where I met Gail Brandeis, who was a wonderful um, fiction and poetry writer. And you start producing things and, okay, what's going to be my story? Like, what am I going to do? And I remember at the time I had given up caffeine 
for some reason I stopped drinking coffee, but I didn't get the memo that, all right, you might want to taper off on something <laughs> yeah. like green tea or anything like that. So I remember having this tremendous migraine and some of these, that idea like, of okay, what's going to be the next story kind of came to me. It was like my head was buzzing. I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds good. And kind of went with that. And uh, yeah, just, you know, went back to school for it basically. And then hired a writing coach. That was probably the best thing I did, that one-on-one. -on -one. I think people learn in different ways, but uh, Michael Levin became my writing coach and he taught me kind of his method of, okay, how do you get to the conflict? How do you get to the dialogue? How do you recommended books that I just, like anything else, kind of spent the time researching and and learned that books are written a lot like movies are written. And you know, here in America, we want to, we need like storyline, we need plots, we need conflict, we need to get to the action, someone needs to get killed quickly. Like there's a lot of things that make movies the way they are and our brains are actually programmed to watch and we expect those things as an audience. So once you kind of learn the rules of engagement for book writing, then going with it and there you have it. And you just spend a lot of time with your characters and character sketching and uh it was a big outlet for me too because at the time I was kind of seeing some pretty gory things like at work and through my uh, beginning of work at a nonprofit as well. So, I think the two things that stand out the most from what you shared are one, it sounds like writing was a way for you to cope and make sense of all of the terrible cases you were dealing with as an attorney. I mean, those are brutally heart-wrenching stories and facts that you're coming up against in their real life. It's not a movie. Like this is happening in the real world. And so using writing as a way to cope with that and deal with that. And then I also love what you said about a great way to overcome an obstacle is to work with a coach. You know, I'm a big fan of coaching. Yep. There's something about committing to like telling someone else that you want to do something too and bringing them into that process that just adds accountability, but also the guidance and the the wisdom they bring to the table. Two heads are better than one, usually. Yeah, no, that aspect of mentoring, um, which is big in the nonprofit I started, which also was birthed by working with a coach. Mm. Uh, Candace, who also I had met in Laguna Beach, was big inspiration behind, because a coach will, you know, I think open your eyes and build your confidence to something that you want to do that seems totally out of reach yeah and I remember her first you know time working with her was what's that idea you have about going out in the community and volunteering and that turned into a full-blown nonprofit. but that again was through the work of the coach like you know writing was really through the help of an individual coach so I absolutely agree and they also believe in you before you can believe in yourself which is huge we all need that yeah so can we just dive into the nonprofit stuff now tell us about it yeah, so uh, back probably around that same time, I was writing The Mamacita Murders, uh, began also just wanted to do something out in the community and was writing at the time. So I think when you pick something of how do you want to go out and help the community, it helps if you can kind of bring your skill set to that as well or something that you're really passionate about because it does take a lot of work to build and gain momentum for that nonprofit. So those two things made the most sense and went out and began mentoring girls ages 14 to 18 in uh, the east side of Riverside, which is impacted by uh, low income and gangs and other crime problems. So I uh, had a first group of about eight girls and began just providing them with you know after school mentoring once a week for a couple of hours where we, we would meet with them we would publish their work we would bring in guest artists that would do visual painting with them and self-portraits and poetry and we even had um, Ruth Treason who was a holocaust survivor that we had met during a field trip going to Laguna Beach library uh, bringing the girls out there she began mentoring and providing she was writing the book uh, or had written the book The Long Walk at the time about her kind of struggle and uh, just started providing them, meeting with them once a week, providing them, you know, emphasis on education and empathy was a big kind of thing that was rolled into our nonprofit. And most of the girls were faced with trauma. Uh, that's always been kind of the adverse childhood experiences. And that grew into 10 years later, it was kind of, you know, 
the overnight success, but not really because it takes 10 years mm -hmm. of all of a sudden, you know, we're implementing our same art and writing program called the right of your life. It's a social emotional curriculum. Uh, started implementing that in uh, adult male prisons. So kind of fast forward, but yeah, we're in schools, communities, and prisons with basically a social emotional learning structured curriculum, uh, which I love. It's highly inspired by the Freedom Writers, which was Aaron Gurrell. Uh, they did a movie on that as well with Hilary Swank where she helped those students that were, um, you know, having struggles in high school and so that combined with Wonder Woman, who's, you know, a female crime-fighting heroine that uh, lassos the truth, and we thought of kind of writing as a way to uh, combat crime and help juveniles who were kind of struggling. So That's so amazing. And you were the executive director for 10 years, right? Yeah, founder and then also create, like co-creator of The Right of Your Life, which is our main kind of signature flag, flagship program. Yeah. And so what I want to ask about, is something you shared at Toastmasters one time is you said you've come from a long lineage of strong powerful women and I want to hear about that but I also want to hear about what what motivated you and drove you to do this I mean you were already an attorney I'm assuming working a lot you were busy what was the inspiration and the motivation behind all this I think see, once you work in the criminal justice system for a while you begin to see the gaps and the deficiencies and I remember working on uh, kind of in, in the parole unit I was working where I would do uh, state parole hearings and kind of around the same time that I was writing but one of the things they do during a parole hearing is it's a suitability hearing to see if this person would be a danger to our society and so there's a large forensic report that's written and a lot of it goes back to those childhood adverse experiences of back when that uh, person that had committed a murder, um, the things that activated them or triggered them on the day of the murder oftentimes tied back to that adverse childhood experience that they had, whether they had been abused, um, something that had gone on in the home, something that had gone on at school. And so starting to see the connection and then also uh, a lot of the gang homicides I had prosecuted, the defendants were anywhere from like 16 to 21 years old, so children killing other children over... Uh, you know, these sorts of things. So starting to see that at the end of the day, no one no one wins in that case. And also starting, you know, okay, can we give kids second chances? I remember doing, I was part of this uh, team that would go out after school into houses um, for kids that were identified as having potential for joining gangs. Maybe a school resource officer would see graffiti on their notebooks or they start wearing colors or they're posing with, you know, signs or something like that. So we would go out um, into their houses. And I remember standing in the living room of uh, one of the kids and his brothers, like, you guys have to give something for these kids to do after school. And he was just being very matter of fact of their is a lot of need for mentors for youth programs and those kinds of things to really steer the kids in better directions. So I was getting just all these little kind of signs and indicators that uh, there was a really strong need. And at the time I went to one of my mentors and talked to him about maybe getting involved or starting a program out in the community. And he was kind of like, we don't really, we have a lot of programs for young men, but not so many for young women, you know, and where the girls go, the boys will follow. And we always heard that story of a gang member getting out of a gang or somebody stopping, you know, a drug problem over a girl. So we kind of went with that for a little bit and it took off from there. So when you made right of your life, was it perfect the first time? Like you just nailed it or was it, did it start as something that slowly evolved into what it is today? No, it wasn't perfect by any means. I mean, we would do these lessons and somebody would come up with them and then when we would, you know, hole punch them and put them in a binder and it was it was like the old school way. At the end of the day though, when you're mentoring kids, I mean, there's it's not that it doesn't necessarily matter what you're doing with them, but what I learned over time is that it's that trusted, compassionate, patient person that is going to be there. And um, that's the most important. So we began over time really investing and in making sure we hired the right instructors. Um, and uh, the program largely though, the curriculum, it 
you know, it evolved when one of the other co-founders, uh, Casey Sutton at the time, her mom was a school teacher and she got involved in the program a little bit after it was originally started. And she noticed a gap that really wanted to include empathy in it. So it became this big um, kind of, whoa, what is empathy? And how do, is it possible to teach that to young people? And how do you do that through writing? And so that made the curriculum evolve even more. And then I remember having a conversation with somebody at a local community center. We had like our office space. They gave us a uh, family services association. And there were therapists on site. And I remember the head therapist is like, oh, this is a really interesting idea. Is your curriculum uh, trauma-informed? I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what does trauma-informed mean? So it was, a learning, it was a learning process. And sometimes I wonder, like, yeah, now it looks like it's all this perfect little, but along the way there was many people who um, added input. The students themselves would tell us what worked, what didn't work. Um, so it was, it, it, it was an evolution. I think that's the best part about working with kids is they will just tell you straight to your face, like, this sucks or I love this. Yes, None of exactly. this beating around the bush. And yeah. it, what resonates with me from what you're sharing a lot is that it is so important about showing that you care first. I think it's, what is that saying? It's like, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that's even more true with kids. Like they have a very good bullshit detector and if you aren't there for the right reasons they're going to call you on it absolutely that happened time and time again i remember like all different stories you know from them telling us you guys look really nervous and we're like because <laughs> we are or um asking us do you get paid for this when the reality was no i mean we were coming in you know volunteer and they were so pleased with that to know that they weren't because you know they had gone through social services and systems where people are paid and um yeah so but they always gave us back uh much more you know i think over the years and the reward of kind of seeing people work through the resilience process and um be able to express themselves and build empathy is is extremely rewarding and and builds that back in us as well yeah and would you work with the same students for like year over year or was it shifting and different it was constantly shifting this was a 12-week program there are benefits of working with kids over time the the first pilot course i actually worked with them for a full year because they went through two uh workshops of the ride of your life so it was 12 weeks and then another 12 weeks and then they became uh, kind of my assistant instructor. So they would come with me down to foster group home campuses and they would start teaching the course too, which was very rewarding. Yeah. Of the whole nonprofit experience, what has been the greatest or most fond memory you have of it? And then also what is the greatest challenge? Yeah. You know, it was, it was always when you could, there was a time I had, pretty much exited uh, from working there and I get a call and some of the most rewarding when we went into the adult male prisons these are lifers that um, may or may not have a chance to get out of prison and I used to get to still publish their work because at the end of every 12-week program you publish like the poetry and writing so I would be the finalized as publishing director on a lot of these books that were being produced and the level of talent because it was a lesson plan we had. We had professional, you know, sketch uh, artists and, and visual artists going in. But when you have um, a skilled, a skilled person kind of like doing this as well, it takes your curriculum to the next level where you can kind of see it. Um, I remember when I was reviewing the first set of prison work and we do something called authentic self and it's a self-portrait all the men about 20 men that were in, or at that time probably like 12 men that were in our course they all looked very young like in their i don't know early 20s and i said wow we have a really young group and my instructor said because i hadn't actually been in the prison uh, the instructors said, um, no, they're all much, much older, but they all, I, I said, do they not have mirrors in prison? Like what's going on? And they said, no, they just identify that life kind of stopped at the age that they're now portraying themselves. And they didn't even realize they were all sketching themselves in a much younger um, phase. And that to me was 
kind of a wake up call. Like our our art and our programs help them pass time. And just as humans, I think we all deserve that dignity of something to kind of explore with, uh, to be creative with, and that that was what our program was able to serve um, these men with. And I remember getting a call where somebody had gotten released. And uh, for some reason, my number was like on, I don't know, one of the brochures or website or something still hadn't been removed. And I just kind of talked with him. He's like, your program, uh, you know, he spoke so highly of the instructor that had taught him through the program and how compassionate she was and how it was just a breath of fresh air and something to know that somebody had come in had cared and was teaching them empathy and he was just reciting the different values of the program and said that him and a couple other men had actually gotten parole dates and release dates when they didn't really expect to and that he was he was basically had been released and he wanted to know how he could give back to the program at that point so it's those little stories where you're hearing the results of uh, the people that went through the program that is rewarding, that it's far removed from me. I didn't teach that person. I didn't. But to know that the vision is still living on and people are still benefiting from it is is highly rewarding. Yeah. And all of that happened, even though it wasn't directly at your hands, it all happened because you dared to dream in the beginning. You had this thing that you wanted to bring out into the world and you went and talked to people about it and found a coach and implemented it. Exactly. Which I think is so cool. And I'm I'm really struck by all of these men who are drawing self-portraits of themselves that were much, much younger. That's just because when they went to prison, life kind of stopped. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And so it was really powerful because the reality is that uh, time does, to some extent, slow down tremendously. And so... Some of the artists I later met at a correctional kind of conference, art and corrections conference that was uh, able to fund the program, um, you know, they would talk about that every brush stroke, like on a painting, was passage, represented passage of time. So you would see this very detailed, intricate paintings, you know, of these individuals, which it that has the power to do when you look at a lot of our famous painters and having mental health struggles and just how it does kind of help express almost the ineffable or pastime for some, you know, of something to do. So it's just kind of the power of art has always been really fascinating to me. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. And what about the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges you faced amongst it all? I would say COVID. <laughs> mm. COVID and uh, one of the biggest challenges in, in social work or a lot of nonprofit work, it it attracts us uh, because, you know, we have we have the need to give back and maybe have gone through some struggles and want to help others with those struggles. So with that, from like an employment standpoint, you, you know, I think when you're drawn to this type of work, it's it's a marathon, not a race, and you really have to practice self-care. So that has probably been one of the biggest challenges because it is a business, and but it's a very you're in the business of social emotional learning, which is very emotional. <laughs> so, yeah. and a lot of people um, making sure that our instructors didn't burn out, making sure that they're practicing self-care because a lot of the people that are drawn to the work. Um, can have adverse childhood experiences and typically do so that was a little bit tricky to be able to manage that and that goes you know when that so when that uh, therapist had asked is your is your uh, curriculum trauma-informed you really have to make an intentional deliberate decision to also run an organization that is trauma-informed from the top down and that was a big struggle because going back to one of the reasons I wrote is you know, at work, especially working as a prosecutor and faced with pretty much vicarious trauma on a regular basis, you know, me and leadership are also very kind of traumatized, right? And so you have to be able to, and it, it took a lot to learn, okay, I have to make sure that I'm practicing self-care, that I'm trauma-informed, that I'm living a daily practice because that's going to go from like the top down. So I would say the biggest challenge was 
before we truly became like a trauma-informed agency uh, because it's it's kind of like a pressure cooker in there, I think for any so social service agency. Uh, so that probably would have been the biggest challenge. And what exactly does trauma-informed mean? I think trauma-informed is a lens that you look at any situation through. So for instance, having a trauma-informed agency from the moment let's say like a you know child child protective services agency from the moment maybe a victim makes contact with the agency what does that look like how does that person that picks up the phone answer the phone and have compassion too if you're applying for an agency um, how does human resource have that very first interaction with that potential employee are the employees you know um, what are the values of the agency from the top down how do we interact as a team? Um, what types of instructors do we hire? So it's it's a lens that you're looking at. Um, the same thing with curriculum, you know, down to the right of your life program. What is the first interaction that that potential student has with the program? Whether it's parent making a phone call um, to like a coordinator or, um, you know, are we doing weekly retreats? Are we checking in with our instructors are they well trained you know what is our disciplinary system look like you know if somebody if an employee uh, makes a mistake or does something so it's just a lens really I think in anything um, I think our, our criminal justice system is is starting to become a little bit more trauma-informed you know there was back in the day where um, sex trafficking survivors were you know, when they first had contact with law enforcement, they were treated like criminals, maybe because they had been caught with drugs or mm -hmm. had caught stealing something. But becoming trauma-informed means, okay, if, you know, a young woman is found in a hotel with something stolen, is, is there a bigger story? Let's look at this through the trauma lens of perhaps, you know, there's something else going, perhaps it's, you know, their form, they're part of something or they're being abused themselves. So, you know, it's... Uh, it's a it's a it's a wider lens of taking a step back got it okay so it's acknowledging that there's this big heavy thing that this trauma that is operating and running behind the scenes and your interactions and how you treat people are informed by that exactly okay and the question i want to ask you next is you mentioned writing we've talked a lot about writing and how that has been cathartic and therapeutic for you what are some of the other self-care practices you've implemented throughout all this work I would say meditation would be my second one. Uh, I personally love Vedic meditation, so it's basically having a mantra okay. um, that uh, you focus on, you know, while closing your eyes. And some people focus on breath. Some people focus on, uh, you know, like Vipassana, I think is about your kind of sensations and body awareness and that kind of thing. I'm really intrigued by the mind-body connection also and just the whole central nervous system. So I'm a big fan of anything that you can do to calm that central nervous system and control your reaction because you, we all know there's that split second um, between what happens to you and then how you react to it. And the only thing you do have is control over your reaction. So meditation is another huge one that uh, I got into um, you know, back when I was in Los Angeles going to a spiritual center. So that's been a huge kind of practice for me. I love salsa dancing. I think any cultural arts, I grew up dancing, ballet folklorico, and it's always been an outlet for me. Uh, so I would say that in addition to the writing. Yeah, well, I'll have you know, I took one salsa dance lesson one time. I remember you were sharing <laughs> that that was a goal of yours and you did, or recently you took a dance lesson. Yeah, more, more needed for sure. <laughs> So with Vedic meditation, is it Vedic? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Is that like transcendental meditation where you work with a teacher to get your mantra or is it something that you come to by yourself? I came to it by myself. I think I was just encouraged to pick a word and started researching them. And, uh, but I, it's similar. I never had like a coach necessarily teach me. I went to a three-day silent meditation retreat in Joshua Tree that was mm. run by the Agape Spiritual Center and Michael Beckwith and so that's kind of where I immersed myself and I showed up not realizing it was a silent retreat but uh went along with it and that was kind of it taught me how to meditate I love Michael Beckwith 
He is the best. I, I don't know much about him. I've just heard him on a couple of different podcasts. He, he's been on Sean Stevenson's podcast, The Model Health Show, multiple times. And I've tuned into his like live. It's almost a mix between a meditation and a sermon uh, on Sundays sometimes. He's incredible. What was that? What was that silent retreat like in Joshua Tree? That sounds like I need to go. So it was over New Year's, which was really interesting. And one of my colleagues is a children's book author at the time. He would teach yoga there. So he said, you put it on your bucket list. It has to be one of the things that you do. And I don't know. I was just called to kind of do it one year. And so it's it's it was wonderful. Uh, a lot of visualization exercises because of the timing of the year. Uh, it's a lot of purging kind of a prior year things and then welcoming in kind of for getting ready for the new year. So that I like. I definitely like those little rituals. There was a Peruvian shaman family, uh, husband, wife, and his daughter who were there doing um, flute music and kind of a lot of the uh, blessings and, and rituals and such. And so there was a whole process. So Michael Beckwith, he ha at the time had a book on visualization. It was a very specific kind of method. So he would basically give talks on that. That was part of it. There was some energy healing where we worked with a stranger and uh, did a lot of like kind of positive affirming of them silently kind of in your own head that was emitting energy and heat it was really neat and then you had a chance to do yoga but all day you know there would be one hour blocks of just the meditation and it was just a great place that helped you quiet your mind learn how to practice those meditations and I really believe that we all have the answers within us we just don't quiet our minds enough to be able to hear those answers yeah and for everyone listening I have a huge smile on my face this is <laughs> right up my alley I'm definitely gonna have to get the name of this retreat from you so I can do this because oh man New Year's has always been something that has challenged me and my most recent New Year's debacle was that I think it was last New Year's. I actually tried to cancel New Year's in my own life. I was like, I just don't like this holiday. I'm going to remove it. Like we're, we're just done with it. But I realized that that was actually coming from a, a not a good place. So we're going to celebrate New Year's next year and maybe I'll do this. Excellent. I love it. I know a girlfriend of mine also today was telling me about a 10 day Vipassana retreat that she went on as well which is a different form of meditation. And uh, she was raving about it as well, also in Joshua Tree. Wow. And you were silent the whole time. You, even with the energy work with the stranger, like no talking? Yes, there was one moment where we did have to kind of write our biggest dream at the time. And I remember that was something we did verbalize to a stranger, which was one time we got to talk in our room too. I think we had a leak, so we got to call the it was like in the shower so we got to call the manager and talk <laughs> and then my friend that was also the children's book author who had a booth there uh we would kind of talk during passing but yeah everything's silent and then on new year's after you know midnight everything erupted in fun you can actually talk for the first time uh and you could actually dance because they're just a big dancing family at agape spiritual center and so they were playing all kinds of music in the cafeteria and everybody just sort of celebrated at that time. Uh, so it was fun. It sounds incredible. And I have to ask, I mean, you, you put it out there. What was your biggest dream? <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember at the time I wanted to be the Latin, I was calling it the Latin O, like Latin Oprah. And I had to step back and say like, what does that even mean? Uh, but it is important. I'm half Mexican. And so I think it's, especially with young women, important for uh, them to kind of see what's possible. So to stand in a position or be in a professional position of uh, power or influence so that when they see you, they look like you where they believe it's possible for them, you know, to be, become that as well. So I think at the end of the day, it was more to just be a positive impact role model um, for young Latinas as well. So that's always been kind of near and dear my heart now I say it's like the brown Brene mm. like a Brene Brown because I love what she's done with research and vulnerability yeah. and if I could bring attention and awareness to something like um, resilience and empathy and you know those kinds of things I think that would that would be something 
special too. The brown vernet. I love that. That's really clever. Amazing. So there is one thing you mentioned earlier that's a bit of a left turn, but I want to go there real quick and ask about it. And it's the caffeine thing, because I'm someone who has tried to give up caffeine in the past. And it is literally the hardest thing I've ever done. I went cold turkey as well. Do you still drink caffeine? Are you what was what was the motivation behind that at the time? I think for I think I had heard something like for women um, with hormones and it's just it affects our hormones much more than for men. I forget where I read it or what type of study. And it was difficult. It was really difficult um, for me to give it up. And my sister told me, she's like, well, you're just cutting it out cold turkey. Like you need to kind of taper off, at least have like green tea. And then I read uh, a book on sleep. I forget who it was by, but he um, he had this method where it basically trickled down, like still have your caffeine, like allow yourself for a week to have like the caffeine that you want and begin. Now, um, my main two, my main thing is matcha, so mm. green tea, but I still make it like a latte. Like I love the ritual. I love holding my cup of whatever it is. It was a little bit of an acquired taste for a while, um, but now I'll even just do straight green tea, but always kind of with some sort of like almond milk or something. If it's a day where maybe, I don't know, I didn't get good sleep or something and I really want to pick me up, I will still allow myself like uh, a cup of a cup of coffee. But in that book I read, it was very clear that coffee has a half-life so it's never truly out of your system and so i'm a big proponent for sleep so if i can just hack my sleep the best way possible so i will notice if i have a cup of coffee now um it'll it will impact my sleep yeah yeah i had a cup of coffee yesterday i don't drink coffee very often i normally just do green tea and i yeah i didn't sleep as well because i think so is the book you're referring to why we sleep by matthew walker no, I want to say his name is Sean. Okay. Is it Sean Stevenson? He also has a book on sleep. Do you know the name of it? Um, it could sleep be. Sleep Smarter? I think so. Okay. Yeah. And he talks about, I think, the half-life. And then he has like a protocol for getting off of, weaning yourself off of um, coffee, caffeine. Amazing. But I mean, with green tea, I look at it also as the health benefits with antioxidants um, and cancer fighting. So. Yeah. And green tea... I'm, I'm super biased because I love it, but I feel like it has the perfect amount of caffeine. Like it's just a little bit to get the juices flowing, but it's not like when I had coffee yesterday, I just felt like I was in eighth gear, just like redlining yeah. the whole day. And then, yeah, I, I go to bed and I just couldn't stop thinking. So it was a lot. I think I also like cacao. I mean, I think if you're, it'll still have that pick me up or like um, the chocolates are for, you know, sometimes those packs of four sigmatic those kinds of things like I, I love those as alternatives as well so another fun question is why do you like to throw parties so much <laughs> that is purely my mom so I grew up you know with a Mexican mom and uh, she just loved to throw a good party we would have reunions in our backyard with mariachis we would, you know, the dog would get sick because he's basically taking handouts from everybody like for a party uh, it's a big thing with Mexican families. And so I grew up where, you know, the pinata, you know, pictures when I'm super small, like barely can walk um, with a huge pinata, friends over all the time. My mom always like made it a big to do. So I always say she wrecked it, you know, because presents and everything. So I think growing up with it and I don't know, I just I love celebrating um, even my mom recently passed away and she was very clear on her wanting it to be like a celebration of life and mm. a mariachi and no tears and boohoo. So um, I think it's just something it reminds us every year. It's kind of like a new year to me where you sort of have a good opportunity to reflect on, you know, what you've done the past year, what you want to be doing or where you're at. Um, have you created the life that you want? And so it's a good reflection period. So now it's turned into like a whole month. Uh, of celebration like around birthdays and you know I love celebrating other people's birthdays and yeah it's a good good place to gather and socialize and yeah I love it. I've, I've gotten a lot of invites to your parties and I've been to one and <laughs> I got COVID <laughs> so we're working on it but I'm going to be back in the future just some we will them. have COVID <laughs> protocol I promise <laughs> oh, Christmas with a side of COVID <laughs> 
It was great. So a couple more questions I have for you as we wrap up. One that we love to ask all our guests, and it's just simply, how do you define success? I used to have a tagline in my email, like signature, and it's a stolen quote, but it's success comes when you're too busy to look for it. A part of me was that was that was the truth, right? I was kind of working up the ladder at work and all of a sudden, because I'm kind of just too busy and doing my thing, and all of a sudden I'm getting prosecutor of the year, you know, and considered uh, a successful lawyer. Uh, success also came with the nonprofit of just writing the grants, applying for the art, you know, writing those proposals, getting them out, being busy, kind of doing what you're supposed to do. And all of a sudden we get, you know, some of the biggest funding opportunities from California Art Council to go into the prisons. Um, you know, part of that journey was also speaking at a women in corrections conference of bringing awareness about the program and then talking to the people on the ground like in the vendor booth sections of they really could use this in adult male prisons and so just out again doing my thing too busy to think about success and then it just kind of happens so i've always uh defined success with that on on the other side too it's also been being able to balance the best that you can um, taking care of your social emotional while you're having a good professional quality of life and I think a lot of people are just in the rat race and maybe not focused on their goals, um, maybe not intentional with them, but I think if you could create whatever that looks like for you of a professional quality of life, that to me um, you know, is success. Because you can also be at the top but depressed or at the top but you know, traumatized um, or whatever that looks like. So. I think having, you know, making sure that you understand you're taking the temperature of your kind of professional quality of life all the time will keep you on that journey of success. Mm, I like that. Taking the temperature, making sure that you're not overheating in any area. Exactly. And Viktor Frankl has a quote that's similar. He talks about the best way to find happiness and success is exactly when you're not looking for it. Yeah. So that resonates a <laughs> yeah. lot with me. Yeah. And then the other question I'd love to ask you is, Given where you are today and all of the successes and accomplishments that you have, what advice would you give to your younger self? Ooh, not burn out. You know, I read a quote that it's better to like burn out. Well, no, it's better to burn out than to fade out. And I think what happened kind of in my career, like with some of those biggest challenges and doing too much at once, uh, we all have like a bandwidth, right? And so again, it's it's taking that temperature of your professional quality of life and realizing it's it's a marathon, not a race. Um, so to really uh, be intentional with choices of how you're going to get to where you want to get, have coaches along the way, um, which help you kind of sift through that and give you really good things to think about and ask those critical questions um, because we all need that. We all need kind of a guide. I think through anything that you're going to accomplish. Okay. And then here's a bonus question that just came to my mind. Have you had any, and if you have, can you describe them moments along your journey where it was almost an oh shit moment or an existential crisis where you're looking around at what you're doing in your life and you're just questioning everything or has it been smooth sailing the whole time? I want to say my biggest oh shit moment happened more recently um, where you kind of know, like I've, I've rearranged my life to take a step back, right? And really reflect and enjoy the things that I've created, whether that's working really hard as a lawyer and now being able to spend more time uh, with family or friends and those kinds of things. So I, it's been a gradual process, I want to say over the last three years really of um, having those little oh shit moments of like what's really important in life but I want to say when my mom watching my mom kind of pass over the last several months has been this one of her last kind of statements was you can never retrieve time you know and it really got me thinking like that's the one thing that you can never really replace and so to really be intentional with everything those things you have on your back burner you know, or that friend you can't see or find time to see, like 
the oh shit moment is like, no, like we have to do this. We have to do it now. Um, stop waiting, make that bucket list and actually do it, you know, and check off those things and see those people that you haven't seen because at the end of it, we're not, you know this, we're not sitting on our deathbeds talking about how great our, and successful our career necessarily was, but it was like the regrets of not doing things and kind of going back to the regrets of the dying of, you know, a lot of things. It's like they wish they, um, you know, had pursued things, you know, not had so many regrets or had more, you know, took the time to do those things. So I want to say with watching um, the passing of my mom, that's been like the true oh shit moment, but there's been many along the way of, um, you know, prioritizing health, prioritizing emotional health, um, prioritizing friends and family and those. So kind of rearranging life because I think for so long it was go, 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 mm -hmm. you know, uh, pedal to the floor, you know, laying the tracks in front of me um, when I'm the only, you know, I'm the train and I'm still trying to lay the tracks to keep up like that mentality. <laughs> Uh, Shonda Rhimes uses that in her book of Year of Yes, I, I love. And so it's that reminder that you're the one that's pushing this forward. Like you also have the ability to like, you know, stop and reflect and enjoy kind of what you've created. I love that analogy. I've never heard that. I've only heard the you're building the plane while you're flying it. Yeah. But I like the train thing. version. <laughs> and that's so powerful. Your mother sounds like such a wise woman that you can't retrieve time and you have to make time now for those important things. I'm reading through The Five Regrets of the Dying again, and it's just so powerful. The number one regret people have when they get to the end of their life is, I wish I would have had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expect of me. And I think what that means to me is making time for the things that matter to you now and not doing all this other ancillary thing that other people want you to do that these expectations you have, it's just mm -hmm. doing you and doing it now. I love that. No, so well said. I think that book's definitely worthy of rereading. Yeah. So as you shift into this next stage of your life, as you focus on becoming the Brown Brene, where can people find you, learn more about you? How can we get your book? Yeah, uh, it's available on Amazon. So the Mamacita Murders. And I go by my grandparents' name, which is Mares, M-A-R-E-S. And uh, I also have a children's book called It's This Monkey's Business, which actually grapples with domestic violence and divorce. So it's for ages four to eight, which was a, a collaboration. I just loved writing. Uh, yeah, so this can be found on Amazon. Do you have a website or anywhere else that we should direct people to an Instagram? Instagram. Yeah. Deborah Mares, D-E-B-R-A-M-A-R-E-S. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Gregory. This is so much fun. Yeah, I know I loved it and I loved your questions and thanks for just, you know, helping people dare to dream. I think at the end of the day, you're, you'll never regret kind of following through with your dreams. Yeah, I'm here to just poke people and irritate them until they do what they want. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you to everyone tuning in with us today. We love you guys and we'll see you next time.